This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as a February room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and fishing accessories. Tech. Precision. Ingenuity. Legacy. Go to cdfishing.us and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Here's your host, Lauren Carnop, and this is The February Room. Welcome to The February Room, and today I have an incredible guest, my first guest ever from Cape Town, South Africa, Jean Coetzee, also known as The Oracle. Thank you for joining me today. Um, thank you very much, Lauren. Oh, it's quite exciting. I mean, I had a conversation with my wife right now, and in terms of having this discussion, it's actually exciting to be able to, to share the passion that we all have. I mean, we see it on Instagram right now. We're all sort of connected on, on a spiritual level with, with a true passion, and that's fly fishing. I think that's so true is that we met on Instagram and I just was like, wow, you have such incredible photos. You have to have some great fishing stories and it's great with technology that you get to share it with me today. And I'm ready to hear one of your fishing stories. The best story, I suppose, and sort of speaks true to my personality structure and the way that I've approached fishing or life, as it were, um, was I've just returned from the UK and that was in... 99. So I spent three years in the UK playing rugby and doing work there. My fiance was over there as an occupational therapist. We returned to South Africa and I, I got involved in, in doing workshops or lectures at, at the universities in South Africa. So we're based in Cape Town and I had to go up 
to the north of the country, so the middle of the country, which is called the Free State, and there's a the 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 city there is called Bloemfontein, and then up to Johannesburg, and then I was going to come down the coast, and the east coast, and go fishing there. Any case, so it it was in the early days of my saltwater fly fishing experience, and I packed in. I just bought a nine weight and a nice Tebow reel and two lines, and arrived in Bloemfontein and got hold of a fly fishing magazine. And in the fly fishing magazine, they had this article on an island just off Maputo and Mozambique coast called Inyaka. And they had these amazing photos of, of GTs and barracudas. And the information was you could stay at like contented accommodation. There's, there's a charter. You get a flight from Maputo to Inyaka. And while driving up um, to Johannesburg, I thought, cheapest, why don't I just do that? Um, I've got like a week to spare to kill before I have to get into the Eastern Cape. And the information was very cryptic in terms of, of getting onto this island. So I knew you had to get to Maputo and you have to go to the border posting near uh, the Kruger National Park. So the Kruger National Park is the big sort of nature conservation where you get lions and elephants and you have to drive up there to this border posting. So everything was very sketchy because I knew as soon as you go into Mozambique that it's a bit lion country. And what I mean with lion country, anything can happen there. I knew you could get arrested for not for speeding and then you had to take, pay bribes to get out of these things. But I was super ambitious. I had my mindset, I'm going to Nyaka with only one rod. Remember, I had only one rod with me. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Now I've got a whole barrage of rods and reels, only rod and a, and a box of flies. I just started to have saltwater flies at that stage as well. So in any case, I, I drove up to, to Nelspreit, which is, I think, about an hour away from the border posting of, of uh, Mozambique. And I knew I had to be careful driving into Mozambique. So I got to the border posting, but everything is about timing going into the deeper side of Africa. So the flight going to Inyaka from Maputo, you couldn't book beforehand. You couldn't book anything beforehand. Um, you couldn't book the accommodation. You couldn't book the flights. Um, I found out that you can store your car in Maputo and then you get a taxi to the airport and I got this sorted out. I've got it. I've got it covered. I've got my rod. I've got everything. Janae was very upset with me, my wife, and said, no, this is crazy. And I said, no, no, I'll be fine. Um, I'll make it up as I go along. So in any case, I arrived eventually in Maputo and at the first robot, uh, a traffic warden pulled me over. And I think, oh, my word, here we go. And he said, no, I'm going to arrest you. And I said, well, what are, what are you arresting me for? He says, no, you, you made an illegal turn. And I said, no, no, there, there's no illegal turns here. Um, he said, no, no, you must give me your passport. And I, I, I was really cocky at that time. I've got ginger hair, so I've got a bit of a temper on me. And I said, okay, well, take me, to your, take me to your police station and we can discuss it there. And he said to me, no, no, it's okay, you can drive. Okay, so that's the first hurdle that I crossed. Well done. And I got eventually, I found the, 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 the place where I had to park the carts, like a um, garage, overnight garage. And then I had to get a taxi to get to the airport. The, the problem with taxis um, in Africa, specifically in Muputu, there's no, they don't abide by any rules or norms or anything. And everywhere is potholes. And I knew it a half an hour to get to the airport. So yeah, I'm in the taxi, one rod, driving through this track. And it's absolutely madness. It's, it's chaos. You can't believe it. So Maputo used to be um, part of the Portuguese, I think one of their colonies, and used to have beautiful infrastructure, but everything imploded. So when you take, take the 
taxi, they drive on the pavement, they don't stop for, for red lights or robot, call it in South Africa, and it's absolute carnage. So eventually got to the airport, so okay, got in the queue in front of me, and there was this American couple right in front of me, um, so we're now queuing, and they were right in front of me, and we arrived at, we have to now board and get the ticket, um, and I paid for my ticket, they paid for the ticket, and we went to the next stop. And the, I think the, the, the person serving them that the desk said they must pay an entry fee. And I listened to that. And I thought, no, no, that doesn't sound right. We just paid tickets. Why do we have to pay entry fee? So the couple paid the entry fee and I arrived there and he said, um, and I think it was like $50. So they work in dollars for some strange reason um, in, in Maputo. And I said, okay, but can you give me a receipt? And he said, no, that's fine. You can go. All right. <laughs> After all that, Rick Moran, I thought, you can't really go worse. So got into the plane. It's it's it wasn't luxury. Um, the doors couldn't close properly. It was this twin engine plane that hobbled over to Inaka Island, and and we landed there in literally a field. There were cows walking around. There was this one rickety building standing there. Um, so on the island, there's two kinds of accommodation. The one is uh, a lodge, a primary lodge for, for, for uh, obviously tourist people. And then there's this backpackers, which is almost like um, camping accommodation. And we landed. It was just me and this couple in the airplane. And uh, a car came to pick them up. The airplane took off and they, uh, they are stood. I had no clue what now. And it was getting dark. So I thought, no, I'm in trouble here. Um, so per chance, uh, one of the locals came past and I sort of explained to him, um, and sort of figured it out that he'll take me to this to this tented accommodation. I think I had to pay him like twenty dollars to to help me to get this accommodation. So you don't know what's going to happen next. I mean, I was really getting a bit nervous of you know how do I get to this accommodation? I don't know anything. So eventually, everything went out well, and I arrived at the accommodation. It was super nice. It was this this couple they were ex zimbabwean pets and they started this camping accommodation and i told them look i want to go fishing the following day and they said that's fine they they will arrange for me there was an operator that had small boats and they take you to the different areas so the areas that i wanted to fish was um i think just off the off the island there was a reef a shallow reef and there was a lot of barracudas and gts and different species um hanging around there and then there was an island called Portuguese Island. And then where the continent of Africa um, splits away from Inaka Island, there was a big channel there, and they call it Hell's Gate. So those were the areas that I wanted to go fish. Um, so the next next morning, I woke up. I'm super stoked. I'm ready for this. Fly rod in hand. The guide came to pick me up, and we walked down to the pier, and here was this boat. And I, I don't know if you know the term a canoe. Yes. So he basically had a canoe with an outboard at the back. And I'm thinking to myself, no, this is not right. You, you can't go out in the open ocean with, with this thing. So I asked him, do you have life jackets? He says, no, there's no need. This thing floats. <laughs> In any case, be, being myself, I think, oh, well, I'm here. I'm, what's the worst that can happen? You know, blind luck, I went out. So we went out, and it's absolutely beautiful there. I mean, if you ever get the opportunity, just go Google in Hawker Island. It's, it's pristine. It's absolutely beautiful. It's this amazing island with, with green, um, beautiful blue ocean. 
really spectacular. So eventually we arrived at the first day. My focus was going to be on this, this the shallow reef um, just off the island. And I kid you not, we arrived there in three cars. I hook up to this massive barracuda. So what I took with was a nine weight, not a 12 weight, not a 14 weight. And within the first take, this barracuda snaps my rod completely. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh no, this is absolutely devastating. You know, when you get that deep seeking feeling in your stomach and you realize you've just run the gauntlet to get onto this island and now it's all over. So Nathan, I got this guy to with his canoe get us back to the island and trying to figure out what I'm going to do next. And I found out well the following morning there's a flight back, and I I realized I'm I'm uh, you know I'm defeated. Yeah, I might as well get back and dread. I'm, I was so upset with myself. Any case, so the evening I went there's a village there. I went to the village and I thought I'll have a couple of cold ones and drown my sorrows because. That's all I could do. And as I was sitting down, there was this British couple sitting next to me. And I think they were from Kent or somewhere in England. So I started to talk to them just in general terms and what they were doing. So they were staying at the resort. And I started talking, you know, about fishing. And he, he used to salmon fish. And he said, but chance he brought some rods worth. And I'm like, all oh, right, great. And he said, you know what? I've got an I've old fly fishing rod there. I think it's like a 10 weight. You can have it. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, I need to pay. He says, no, just buy me a beer. So obviously I bought him more than one beer and it was a brilliant evening. I mean, I, I woke up with a severe hangover the next morning, ready to take on, on Portuguese Island. And I mean, the, the fishing after that was was amazing. I really, I mean, you know, Portuguese Island's beautiful. What, what's amazing about it, there's, no, there's nobody there. So you're really isolated. You're really in touch with nature. Um, it's raw. It's true raw Africa. And the fishing was amazing and everything was going well. And so I thought, so on the way back, so with the flights, you can't really book the flights. And I didn't want to stay over Maputa because Maputa is, is, is really third world, deep, deep Africa. And I woke up morning the last day and I, I got to the, the, the airfield. They took me this time by car, so I was a bit more luxury driven. And the first flight was out at 10 o'clock. And somehow we found out that flight was cancelled and the next flight was only at two o'clock. And I, I realized I'm up against it because the border crossing, the border post closed like 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. So eventually, and everything had to work like clockwork. Everything had to go 100%. Otherwise, I'm stuck in my putu and I didn't want to stay. There's just no decent accommodation or those days. There's no, so you didn't have a cell phone. There was nothing like that. Anyways, got back into this plane, rickety over the channel, landed in Maputo. And same thing, got the taxi there. This time I told the taxi, look, I don't care, you just drive. Um, I had to pay extra for him to drive, extra more dangerous. And it, was, it was chaos. I mean, I sat in that taxi and thought, I'm, I'm definitely going to die here. This is, this is the end of me. And eventually I got to the, to the, the warehouse where, where I parked the car and there was nobody there. So I realized, okay, the time is now ticking. And I ran around. They eventually got to, and nobody speaks English there, and eventually got hold of a security person, and he got the car out. So now I'm on my way to the border crossing. And I arrived, I think the border crossing, I can't really remember, um, Lauren, exactly, but say five, 5 o'clock. I arrived just 5 o'clock at the border crossing. So I went in, had my passport, and... The, the, the security um, at Border Crossing said they can only allow me back in South Africa if I pay $50. And I'm like, are you crazy? I'm not going to pay back to get in 
into into South Africa, he must be stupid. So I had a massive argument with this guy, and he was warning me he's going to call the police. And my my red edge just kicked in my Irish heritage, and I got in my car and I drove through the border crossing. And I think I'm still a fugitive in in, in Mozambique today. I think they've got a warrant of arrest out for me. <laughs> and, and and reflection, I mean, everything could have wrong got wrong, but you know, hindsight is is fabulous. It was a great adventure. It's a good story to tell. Um, it was a bit cavalier. I'm not sure I'll do it that way again, having children right now. But still, I mean, if you go look at Inyaka, it's beautiful. What what an amazing place. And Africa, yes, it's raw, but it's still amazing to be there. Do you still have the 10-weight rod that the guy gave you? Yeah, I actually do have it. Um, it it's like something – You know, Snowbee used to make rods way back. I don't know if you've got Snowbee there. Um, and it's a new – it's almost like the early rendition of airflow rods. Um, you know, it's actually not a fly rod. It's more a broom. You know, I, I fished hard on Inaka, especially Hell's Gate, because the fish and I had blisters on my hands um, because this rod wasn't balanced. Um, so so double hauling was caused. But, yes, I still have the rod and I, I still have it. Yeah, I wouldn't fish with it. And what a lovely couple. You know, I, I suppose that's the nice thing about fishing is the people that you meet on the way. It's like bad luck, but what's such great luck to have somebody who's like, have give me some beer and or buy me a beer and give me the rod and we'll just enjoy the rest of your trip here. So I'm curious, how did you um, how did you get into fly fishing? Yeah, it's actually actually a very nice story. So my father is a reverend. What's funny, my father in law is also a reverend, and my brother in law is reverend. So we've got like. Um, in the Dutch Reformed Church, the deep heritages of, of, of reverence or, or preachers. I'm not sure what it would be, probably a preacher and, and religious. Yeah, church, a, a preacher, preacher probably, yeah. So my, my, my father was studying at Stellenbosch. So Stellenbosch is in the wine region of the Western Cape. It's a, it's a, it's a real pretty town. It's one of the first towns um, that was ever established in South Africa after um, the initial landing in, in the Western Cape. Um, and it's a beautiful town, and it's surrounded by lots of vineyards. And my father was studying to become a, a preacher. And we lived there, you know, for a big part of my, my formative years next to a, the, a river called the Eerste River. So that's the first river translated into English. And my father was also very, you know, athletic and sport oriented. And at some point, he, him and his friends started to bass fish. And I think I was about six and seven and went went with everywhere. I mean, I went bass fishing. So in, in, in the wine regions, there's a lot of small farm dams. We call it dams over here. So it's basically uh, a small mini reservoir that the farmers use to sort of um, collect water. And all of these dams have small mouth or big mouth bass in. And we used to go spinning and using different jigs for these things. And it was absolutely out. It was amazing. It was like this world opening up to me. I was obsessed. I can remember we went on Saturdays and I couldn't sleep due to the excitement. And then I'll start rigging my rod and I'll get hooks in my ears. And and we, we caught, I mean, I've got photos of me holding bass that's as long as me. So there's nobody fished these waters. It was not like a known sport um, like today. And and then we stayed next to this river and I used to go swimming in the river and play in the river. It's, it's not a massive, I mean, it. You know, in, in UK terms, that would be more like a chalk stream sized river. I'm not sure what you have in equivalent there. And I walked down one day up the river and I saw somebody fly fishing. And I was absolutely bemused by this. Uh, what are they doing? And I actually 
went to speak to the um, person, was a student studying there, and he, he said, no, this is fly fishing. I said, okay, well, you know, what's that about? And he told me, a little inquisitive boy wanting to find out, um, and totally in awe of, of this fly fishing thing. I didn't know about it before that. And I ran home, and I said to my dad, look, I want to fly fish. And he said, okay, well, let's get you going. So uh, that's very important. The context of my fishing wasn't an apartheid. So we had sanctions. You just didn't get decent equipment. You know, it was not, it was not readily available. And my dad got hold of somewhere second-hand fly fishing rod, rod, not with a cork, not with a cork handle. I think it still had like a plastic spongy handle. I don't know if you remember those rods. Um, Action was really not into it. He got a he got a line somewhere, and I think it was like a fast sinking line, so it was not even a floating line. Um, <laughs> and somewhere we got hooks, and and that's how I started fly fishing. And it took me a while to figure it out, actually, how to f- fly fish. Because initially you sort of stream feed and then pull the the fly up the, the the channels, and you would pick up trout. And I thought this is amazing. This is next level. And so we kept on bass fishing for a long time. And then eventually what, what happened is my father had to finish his studies and had to go and, and become a, a preacher at a church. And we moved away from Stellenbosch. And it was devastating because it was truly Nirvana. It's this beautiful town. We listened to a river. I used to fish every day of my life. And then I sort of lost a bit of touch with fishing because I then sort of started becoming really involved in, in sport, like rugby specifically, uh, it's quite all right in rugby. I did all right. I played first team rugby and first team cricket. And um, I lost my way a bit of fishing. And then I became a student at about 17, 18. And I, I, I studied in Wellington. So Wellington is also part of what we call the Boland region in the Western Cape. It's also part of the Winelands. And Wellington is situated in all the fly fishing rivers in the Western Cape. So there's about four rivers there. Most of the rivers are predominantly predominantly rainbow trout and some brown trout. And I got there my first year um, and I picked up my old rod and my mom bought me a rod for, for, for Christmas that year because I heard about the fishing there. And I started to fly fishing extensively um, for, for the rainbow. So the rainbows were, quite, were easier. It was more accessible rivers. And then there was a river we called the Vita. So the Vitter is up in the mountains. You have to hike. It's about an hour to two hour hike, a rough terrain to get to this river. And, and the trout was extremely skittish because it was crystal clear water. I mean, it's those, those rivers where you see your flies um, shadow on the bottom of the river if it floats past. And I started to fish there obsessively. I mean, I, you know, that's the period that I went through relationships like other people went through milkshakes, I suppose, to use it. Because I just couldn't stop fishing. I mean, I missed, I missed dates with with girlfriends because I went fishing, and you know, often asked you make a choice fishing. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm embarrassed to say this. <laughs> embarrassing. I mean, I, I you know, I, I got really dumped. Um, I was selected to play um, the equivalent of, of provincial cricket, um, but you had to go to trials, and and it was a perfect day. And I thought the trials were. Sorry, I don't want to tell you a story in the midst of it, but. The, the trials were like 12 o'clock on a Saturday. And I decided, okay, well, I'll go the morning and I'll go fishing. And then I'll still have enough time to get trials. And I got completely lost in fishing. And now about 2 o'clock, I realized, oh, my words, I forgot about the trials. And I never got selected for the team. And I'm not sad about it because the fishing was brilliant. 
And he goes, <laughs> moving on from there. So fishing went on like that. And then I, I was in the Navy for about two, three years. Um, also fished, but not that extensively. And then my, my wife today, um, she went over to the UK. And heartbroken, I decided, okay, well, let, let's go to the UK. And the UK started to open up for South Africa. So apartheid just fell away and we could start traveling again. And the opportunities opened up there. And I arrived in the UK and I did some forensic assessments um, for, for local authorities, um, court work, and also played club rugby, which was amazing. So obviously arriving in the UK, I and mean, that's the heart, the, the heartbeat of fly fishing. And I always had this dream of, of owning a Shakespeare rod, because that's the only rods that we knew about, the expensive rods. And I, I, I went, and I mean, most people in fly fishing would know about followers of Paul Mall in the UK. And I saved up a bit of pounds and I walked in there and I met my mentor on fly fishing and a person that, that just made me think differently about fishing is Brian Fratel. So he was the fly fishing director of Follows. And I walked in there with this hundred pounds and I said, look, I want to buy myself a rod. And he says, um, you know, what you're looking for? And, you know, I wanted a three weight because all our streams in South Africa were three weights. So he said, and he said, um, you know, he brought out a hardy. I still have the rod. I have it next to me. I actually took it out this morning just to have it next to me for this conversation. Um, and, and the real. So I, I said to him, look, I've got a hundred pounds. He said, well, that doesn't buy you much. It doesn't even buy you a decent rod. And I'm like, oh, I'm gutted. So I said to Janae, my wife, well, then I, and Brian said to me, you know what? I'll give you a hardy perfect. It was a seven foot eight rod. And I'll give you a marquee um, fly reel. And a floating line. And I guarantee you that you'll be back to buy more rods from me in the future. Um, and and I conquered the world with that three weight. I mean, I've fished so many streams. I've fished the reservoirs. I, I think I've broke a few records in those reservoirs of catching big trout on the small little rod, um, the dinky little rod. And, and what was amazing, I think Brian thought that I stalked him, and I think I did stalk him. I would spend hours in that shop having conversations, and his mind, the way that he analyzes fishing, um, you know, he, he sort of emerges himself in fishing and understanding water movement and, and, and how fish relate to structure and bait fish. It was absolutely amazing to have these conversations. Um, it's, it's like almost playing, you know, um, amateur rugby and you're talking to an international rugby player. Um, you had all of their knowledge base. And what was amazing about Brian, we struck up a really good friendship. And, you know, we were saving to come back to South Africa ultimately. And he, he so follows at all these different beats on all, all the different salmon streams, on the chalk streams. And he would give it for free to me. He'll say, okay, Jean, um, we've got a beat opening up. You know, do you want it? I'm like, yeah, fabulous. But Brian, I don't have the right equipment. And he would give his his rods and his reels um, to go fish. I fished salmon streams. I fished the Wiley, which is in the Sutton Valley, and which is amazing. There you have to wear a tie um, and a jacket. You can't just go there in your your, <laughs> your cap and your um, Sims shirt. You have to actually wear a tie um, to be able. You're not allowed to, to nymph fish. You're only allowed to dry fish. So that's sort of the... The, the passion and then we we came back to south africa my father fell ill and i had to come back and on my way out i said to brian look i'm going to south africa there's so much coastline there what would you recommend and i bought a, a nine-way rod from him and a t-bar rod and and that's 
coming back to South Africa, started fly fishing again in streams, and I, I just picked up on the saltwater fishing. I mean, today I don't even freshwater fish anymore. It's a, it's it's just a total emergence of of being part of nature. I mean, just being in in that water column, um, you know, taking up the challenges, seeing this amazing fish that swim in in the ocean, and the power and the rawness of it. Um, I mean, I've I've got sort of funny stories about holding big. Um, local species, which we call a garrick, so that we also call it a learfish. And you probably see it on my Instagram. Um, they've got this. They've got this funny lateral line. It almost looks like a heartbeat. And and the fish feels their skin feels. They don't have scales. It feels like leather, soft like a soft leather jacket. That's how their skin feels. And they're this amazing creatures. And you hold them in your hand. And I actually become emotional when I hold this big fish. And you release them back into the water. And I suppose that's the connection. You know, that spiritual connection where you're with nature. Um, in my style of fishing or the way that I like to fish, I want to be in the ocean. I want to feel the waves. I want to feel the sensation, the wind, and all of those components. Sorry, I'm getting carried away. <laughs> Sorry. I'm a- no, no. Honestly, it sounds – just listening to you describe the, the place where you fish, I mean, I think it just brings so much uh, – passion and i think it's just interesting because obviously we have never met before but the passion that i hear from you and your fly fishing it's it's just the same as here in um in montana and and despite that we don't have obviously we aren't close to any saltwater fishing Mm -hmm. but that feeling of just being on the river and listening to the water and just your surroundings and then when you catch a fish I mean, um, but that fish that you what what was it called again? It's called a garrick. Um, so they garrick, yeah, garrick, um, G A R R I C K, garrick. So mm-hmm. you find them in Spain and I think in Italy as well. And they they're amazing. They're super predatory fish and they hunt in packs. So and it's a visual, you know, it's the visual component of fishing where you actually see these chases of this massive garrick. Um, chasing your fly. So you would cast out and you'll start stripping back. And there's also a specific way that you strip for them and you fish for them. Um, and, and, and you just start seeing the water boiling. And you've got this, I wouldn't call it a shell because that sort of just fits in, but it's like a pack of hounds coming after your fly and they hit the fly. So they use their body to, to almost stun the bait fish. Um, so they would hit the fly from the side. Um, and then they will turn on and they eat it. And it's actually a sensational fish to catch, um, you know, locally. And, and what's nice about them is that they, they're not easy to catch. So it's not a dime a dozen. You can't just arrive and expect to catch a carrot, um, especially the bigger ones. Um, they Sometimes they just don't want to eat. So they'll keep on chasing, but they won't eat. It's infuriating. I mean, I've had days on the reefs where I've got these meter learys coming after, so we call them leary. A leary in Afrikaans is leather. So it's a leerfish, a leather fish. And I would come off that reason. I'm shaking because all of this chase has happened. You wouldn't catch a fish. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting species, how they hunt and how they function. These fish just sound like super fun to catch. And it, it takes skill because, you you know, even though they, they're also weary of their surroundings, like they're not going to just eat what you give them. What what do you use to uh, catch these fish? What are you fishing with? There's there's two flies that you use, and I think Popovich um, started with this fly. So it's silicones. Um, I don't know if you know the silicone fly. Basically, you know, you 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 spin like you build a tail with normal bucktail, um, as you would 
tie like a semper fly, and then you would spin um, almost like a inner of a of a of a cushion material, down material, and you will cut it in the shape of of a fish. You will create the you will create the body structure with that, and then you put silicone, normal marine silicone, over it. And there's a specific way that you put it over. And and what's what's amazing, you know, it's my go-to fly for any. I mean, I'll tell you about other species we've got here as well called cob, which is amazing. But what I like about that fly, you get neutral buoyancy. So the problem with clouds, it's like a jig fly, right? Up and down, up and down. With, with a silicone fly, if you make the nose a bit flatter, so you just push the with like a plastic uh, piece of a piece of plastic, you push the nose flat, and it creates a super action in the water. Um, and, and what's amazing about fishing the silicone, I mean, you get a lot of spinning guys that go target Lyris as well. And I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing how much fish you actually catch with a fly versus the guy that spins. And interesting, that's where the term Oracle comes from. Because yeah, I, your nickname. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm super lucky when it comes to fishing. And I tend to always catch fish and I tend to catch a lot of fish. And I, I describe it as luck. Um, and I'm always scared. I always have nightmares that my luck is going to run out, <laughs> which, will be, <laughs> which will be devastating. It hasn't luck in touch wood. It hasn't run out. But so so the silicone creates this neutral buoyancy in the water. And if you look at bait fish, how bait fish respond and what they do, they, they don't hang in the water. They actually sit almost neutral buoyant in the water. It's like a weightless experience. Um, and, and the silicone fly achieves that. And I mean, I use the silicone in X-mouth. I use it for so much fishing. It's it's like a guy. I can't actually, you know, because Garrick is such a finicky fish. You can't you can't throw a semper fly or a or a deceiver at them or a clouser at them. They wouldn't even look at it. But as soon as you put a silicone in front of them, they will come and have a look. Why do you think that is? I think it's it's because they're so honed in on on mullet. Um, and the way that mullet mullet functions in the water, and it's interesting enough. I've, I've looked at it. I don't like to experiment when I'm fishing. You know, it's, you don't change the skill if you're catching fish. But I've seen that if, say, for instance, I change to a clouser or or a or a deceiver, the leeries don't look. And as soon as you put in the silicone, they're there and they have a look and they they would have a bite. So it's a very interesting thing. And the thing what's interesting about leeries as well. If you're standing next to me and we are a meter apart and I cast in a specific area and the lyrics is there, I will catch the fish. You won't see fish. So they very they relate to structure differently. They like to be in front of structure. They don't like waves. They don't like big swell. So there's a lot of subtleties. I mean, the devil is always in the detail, I suppose. But that's such a challenging and amazing species to target. I mean, you know, amongst the other wonderful species that we, we have, I mean, there's a... There's other style of fishing. So we've, I've fished the strand of the reefs, and you can actually Google that. So you go Google strand reefs, Somerset West, Cape Town, and you'll see there's a lot of reefs hanging out there. And for Garrick, I swim out on the reefs. So just keeping in mind, I hope my wife's not listening, that's sort of where <laughs> white sharks hang out and um, lots of shark species hang out there. And you actually swim out on those reefs and, and find reef where you can stand up so you have to get onto the reef you have to swim out there find the reef find the channel so the other species that 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 i target a lot is what we call cob in afrikaans it's kabel yo so it's a bit more prehistoric fish in its in its, its nature and the way that it looks it's a bit more of an ambush fish but at night it becomes more of an aggressive predator so i swim out at night on the to these reefs so what you with do, sharks 
Yeah, we, now we've got understanding me and the sharks. Now you just need to be clever about it uh, and know where you swim and, and where you go. So you go out uh, anything from us about 500 meters to a kilometer. Just before sunset on certain tides, you swim out on these reefs. Um, and then what happens, there are specific channels um, that these carp come in at night. And they, they tend to be very nocturnal in the way that they hunt. Um, and, and you would catch, it's amazing. I mean, I, I get so much bust up on, on carp on those reefs because obviously you can't stop these massive fish. Um, they grow they grow to about 50 kilograms or something like that. And and what tends to happen, you would hook up on them and they would run over the reefs and they'll break your tippet. But what's amazing about that fishing, you can actually, when you fish at night, I don't know how much night fishing you guys do, in the salt, you've got the wind and you've got the waves and you've got the tides and there's so many variables and so many things going on and the water column changes and the rips changes and you can actually, I don't know how it works, I can actually feel the fish in the water, the vibration of these carp moving in the water so you would feel as you retrieve your fly, you could feel the vibration of this carp swimming next to the water, it's it's, it's amazing um, and, and How incredible, how do you see in the dark? Like, how do you, Well, you. I mean, yeah. just your sense. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's the moon, obviously. Um, so, I mean, it's never dark, dark, dark out there. I mean, it depends if it's, it's you know, what's it called, dark moon, then it's a bit gnarly. But you tend to, there's a bit of light coming from, from, from the city, so you get a bit of that. Um, but it's also knowing those reefs and understanding the reefs. And obviously, I mean, you, you need to be careful out there. You need to know what to do. I mean, I... I always get people asking me, can I go with? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, can you swim? Yes. But have you ever swum in a rip current? No, I'm not sure. So I've had a bit of experiences where people go with and they, they could get a bit unstuck there. Um, but it's amazing. I mean, what's amazing, as soon as that sunset, it's, it's just you in the ocean and it's actually dead quiet. I don't know if you've experienced that. You've got this ocean, the, the busyness and the sensory override of the day sort of passes and you in nature in emerging this. And you have to watch the tide, you landing fish. And I mean, from time to time, you hook sharks out there as well. I mean, there's a bronze whaler type of shark in South Africa. You can't land them. They're way too big and way too strong. And even if you had a 14 weight, you, you're going to get unstuck. And, and then you have to swim back. So, I mean, obviously, I catch and release. And you release these amazing um, fish back into the ocean. And it's, it, it, it's a really rad. Um, and, but, you know, it can be quite gnarly to use a surf term. I used to surf. So excuse me for a bit of surfing term thrown into the meat. No. <laughs> Do you ever have any fears when you're out fishing or is it just gone? You're just like, I, I know this water, this body of water. Sorry uh, for or, <laughs> uh, yeah. I think my wife has got the fears. Um, <laughs> she really, she, I, I get a scolding ever. No, I'm actually, and, and that's my strength and I suppose my weakness as well. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a fearful person. Um, and I'm not irresponsible, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to do something that's completely irresponsible. But I, I think, you know, it's, it's understanding, it's, it's respect. So we go into nature. Nature doesn't care if you're happy or sad or you've got a cramp in your leg or you broke a leg. Nature doesn't give anything about that. And the ocean specifically, it just moves on. So it's having, it's, it's, if you surf as well, you know, it's, it's having respect for where you go, understanding where you are. Um, you know, understanding what nature would do with you if you get it wrong. 
it's, it's like almost having, you know, they talk about emotional intelligence and all of that. It's almost like having ecological intelligence and being mindful of where you are in the presence of, of nature and, and respecting that. I, I love that, that what you said, the, uh, you need to be, you need to be in, in tune with nature. I like that. So, uh, Jean, if people want to maybe reach out to you and learn more about, um, going to Cape town and going fishing, is there a way that they could reach out to you or are you kind of like, they're more than welcome. I mean, uh, you know, we've got some really good, we've got one fly fishing shop here that I would really, um, recommend to anybody, but they're more than welcome to contact me on Instagram. Um, and that is J U A N underscore O underscore C O E T Z E E. That's my Instagram. I think that's going to be the best way to get hold of me. Um, interesting enough, the fly fishing um, shop is owned by one of our best cricketers ever um, that played for South Africa cricket. So uh, the fishing fraternity, fly fishing fraternity, is small in in, in South Africa. Um, but they're more than welcome to contact me on, you know, on Instagram. If they want more information, if they just want to share a story, as you can hear, I mean, I'm, I'm really engrossed into fishing. And I think, I think that's the nice thing about Instagram. I don't know if you've experienced that, Lauren. I mean, you, you look at people fishing in places that we never saw, and, and, you know, consistently. And I find that really amazing. I mean, I've learned things off Instagram. So somebody would tie a fly and I will make contact with them and say, what did you do there? And they'll send me information. So, you know, we, we're consistently improving and consistently doing things better. And, and that's the nice thing for me about Instagram. I don't know your experience of it. Yeah, I just think it's kind of interesting, like you said, on Instagram is that I love seeing the photos, but I also like to hear the fishing stories behind it. Because looking at yours is that first off, I mean, you have these amazing catches, but you also have amazing tattoos and you just like have this this look of just like this guy's got some stories that I would love to hear. And so for me, it's the same way. It's just, um, it's a great community. And the thing is, I, everybody loves to tell a fishing story because it's not about the fishing, right? It's all about the nature, the experience and the memories that come from it. Yeah, look at those tattoos. I mean, what I've, what I've tattooed, the one tattoo is, you know, me fishing off the reefs and you'll see it there in the Instagram. I don't know if I saw it, send you the photos. I mean, um, sort of wave deep and they unbalance it's a balancing act on a reef and I tattooed that on, on my on my arm and then I've got a Gary tattoo because it's such an amazing species, you know. So it's truly about these these stories and the experiences that we have and our connection with, with our fishing. It's absolutely fantastic. For the inside scoop on the fly patterns we've discussed with our guest, check our blog for Flies of the February Room. If you would like to enter the February room, shoot us an email at info at cdfishing.us. Also, remember to subscribe, share, and if we've earned it, give us those five stars. Thanks for dropping by, and remember to go fishing. Go fishing.